get myself all sorted out. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you this morning, and uh, you're welcome. Thanks very much for the opportunity to share with you today. Um, well, I say thanks for the opportunity. I'm not sure I really mean that, but <laughs> I see Campbell looking very relaxed this week, so maybe next time I'll be more relaxed. But look, thanks very much for the opportunity. Libby and I have been coming along here to Redeemer for four and a half years, and uh, it's been a really encouraging journey to, uh, to, to go with this community over that time. And uh, we've been supported and developed as followers of Jesus over that period of time. And we thank the community and the leadership for that. This morning, we're talking about Jesus and justice. Um, my experience and understanding of the church and issues of justice has really developed over the years. Uh, my early experiences and uh, understanding very much... Do you need me to do something? No. <laughs> Uh, very much separated the ideas of spiritual justice from social justice. And that was my upbringing and, and, and how I understood things for many years. And over the years, particularly reading people like N.T. Wright and other theologians that have been really helpful in that area, it's come to a point where I've been able to integrate my understanding of the gospel and justice between those social aspects and those uh, spiritual aspects. So I'm really thankful for that. So what, what do we mean by justice? Um, there's a longing for justice inside each and every one of us. You will know that it's, if you've got children, you'll have heard them shouting out, that's not fair. Uh, you'll have heard that from toddlers frequently. So there's an innate sense of injustice and things being right within each of us. And as part of that being made in the image of God, um, as individuals. Uh, I don't know what your musical tastes are. We've probably got a wide variety of musical tastes in this uh, group. Um, but whenever you're listening to a piece of music, and you come to the end of that piece of music, uh, it resolves. There's an ending chord that makes everything feel right. It just brings everything together, and you think that was a satisfying piece of music. But sometimes if you're into a wee bit of jazz like I am, you get to the end of the piece of music and there's a discordant chord. There's something that doesn't resolve and it makes you feel, oh, that's not right. Justice is a bit, is a bit like that. Justice brings things together into a state of shalom or peace, as we've been talking about many times over the last year or two in our community. This morning I want to take an overview of what the Bible says about justice and then try to focus in a bit on what Jesus had to say about justice and ask some questions. Um, probably going to ask more questions than I'm going to give answers, but hopefully it may spark some thoughts and conversations among us. So first of all, there are a number of words that we can uh, translate as justice in the scriptures. Uh, and to try to get a sense of these words and what these words would have meant to the original writers is really helpful uh, as we get to try to get to grips with the ideas of justice in scripture. In Hebrew, there are two words that have, that have overlapping and parallel meanings um, and have been translated justice or righteousness in the scriptures. I'm going to say the words, but they'll be pronounced completely wrongly because I don't have any Hebrew or Greek in me at all. So uh, forgive me um, for that. Uh, these are the definitions that David Gushy, in his book, uh, An Introduction to Christian Ethics, 
uh, gives, and I think they're helpful because they give a flavor of what the, the words mean within the scriptures. So mishpat is about judgments that advance justice, set wrongs right, vindicate those who've been mistreated, and prevent further mistreatment. And the idea of tesequa, perhaps, is what happens when actions are undertaken to rescue parlous people uh, from the touches of those who are harming them and then return them in peace to their rightful place in covenant community. So that gives us a sense of what is behind these words. And then in Greek, into the New Testament, this word, dekiasun, <laughs> that'll have to do, um, uh, is used both whenever the Old Testament is being trans translated into Greek and also with the New Testament writers use this Greek word a lot uh, within the New Testament. And it's often translated as righteousness. But I think that can be a bit of a major problem uh, whenever we come to read the New Testament and read the Bible because the idea of righteousness is not one that we, is, is part of our modern parlance. We don't use it in everyday life. Uh, and quite often it can be translated as justice. And modern scholars have often said that this can lead to misunderstandings around justice issues, particularly when we're reading the New Testament. There are two verses here in Matthew that I think illustrate this issue, uh, and we know them well. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added on to you. Um, if you use the word justice there, it really changes the sense of that verse, doesn't it? And similarly with Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. That really changes how we feel about that, how we sense it, and, and, and the idea of justice. So I want to have a wee chat about justice and the overarching Bible story. Just a bit of background um, uh, as we come towards the arrival of Jesus. Uh, and the theme of justice uh, is central to that overarching uh, story and narrative. In Genesis, we have the story of creation, how God made everything good. Uh, in our series, The Very Good Gospel, last year, we talked about this a lot, that concept of tov and goodness and shalom and peace and that uh, creation uh, of, of good relationships between everything, between the earth, between each other, and between us and God. And we'll also see in the creation story our vocation of humanity to look after nature and each other and to enable the flourishing of all things. In other words, to do justice. We are created not just to respect each other because of our equal worth and our equal creation in the image of God. Justice is not just about that, those individual rights. It's about enabling the flourishing of humanity and creation. And that's the foundation upon which justice is built throughout the scriptures. Things, however, as we know in the story, go quickly wrong, and injustice comes into the story um, between humanity and God and between each other, uh, and that becomes a central issue uh, within our lives to this day. As the biblical narrative progresses, we end up in Egypt. We end up in a place where the children of Israel are um, oppressed and enslaved, and this uh, story of deliverance by God through Moses is central to the Jewish understanding of their story and identity. God saw their pain, um, is what's said in, in, in Exodus, and he acted to rescue them and create a new community 
where he wanted to demonstrate justice being lived out as an example to the surrounding nations. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, puts it this way. He says, Moses dismantles the politics of oppression and exploitation by countering it with a politics of justice and compassion. The reality emerging out of Exodus is not just a new religion, but the emergency of a new, emergence of a new social community in history. And his work is nothing less than an assault on the consciousness of empire, aimed at nothing less than dismantling the empire, both of its social practices and its mythic presentations. So the story moves from that story of Exodus and uh, rescue from oppression through to a period of monarchy. And we see the, the kings coming into the, to, to the story of Israel, and particularly under Solomon, we see that development of affluence, development of practices of a, a oppressive social policy, and religion becomes controlled by the dominant culture. So we have a change in how things are meant to be. And quickly the prophets then come on the, on the scene calling out these injustices. They call out the injustices they see around them and proclaim God's anger and God's intended judgment on the injustices of the society. Fleming Rutledge in The Crucifixion puts it this way. She says, Yet the revelation of God as just forms such a huge part of the Old Testament prophetic literature that ancient Israel would have been considered, it would have considered it a cornerstone of the faith, even if the word justice is not specifically used, the idea is palpably present. God's justice is not vague or amorphous. It is not general and indeterminate. It is specific and particular, showing God is attentive to the material details of human need. So justice is central to that prophetic message throughout the Old Testament. One example in Amos chapter 5, often quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his period, is that, that well-known uh, passage in Amos, I hate you and despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, and ending up with let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing ever stream. Just the, the, the prophets are calling for justice. And again in Isaiah chapter 1, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Also, the prophetic literature is associated then with themes of a coming kingdom and a coming messiah. Um, and the promise the prophets make is one of a, a reign of justice and a reign of future shalom. We see this in Psalm 146. Um, Blessed is, is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord will reign forever. For God was Zion to all generations. Praise the Lord. And in Isaiah 11 as well, we see this particularly that well-known prophetic message about, messianic message about fulfilled in Jesus. Um, a shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. A bud will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest on him. A spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom. A spirit that provides the ability to execute plans. A spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He will take delight in obeying the Lord. 
He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. He will treat the poor fairly. He will make right decisions for the downtrodden on the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and order the wicked to be executed. Justice will be like a belt around his waist. Integrity will be like a belt around his hips. I say all this to try to paint a picture of what word Jesus came into in terms of justice. We had a prophetic literature behind him. We had the people expecting a Messiah uh, who would bring a kingdom and justice. And this is the world that Jesus came into uh, in first century Palestine. The people's expectations were around freedom from oppression of Rome, but of course we know that the kingdom did not arrive in the way that they were expecting. Luke chapter 4 then gives us the earliest record in the Gospels of Jesus setting out his mission. And I just want to read this passage uh, with us together. Um, Jesus had returned to his hometown of Nazareth and was asked to speak in his home synagogue. And this is what happened. Luke 4, starting at verse 16. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of our Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked firmly at him. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician heal yourself, meaning do miracles in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his home hometown. Certainly there, will be, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy at the time of the prophet Elisha, but only one was healed. That was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So what Jesus had to say here was rooted in that prophetic tradition that we talked about. Um, he was announcing that he was the Messiah. He had come to set up the kingdom. He had come to bring justice and to inaugurate this new kingdom that the prophets had been uh, expecting. Jesus announced in this passage, and it's very much associated with that declaration of jubilee, the day of the Lord's favor. The Hebrew scriptures prescribe, prescribe that every 50 years there should be a radical act of redistributive justice. 
Debts would be cancelled, slaves freed, prisoners released. Jubilee is a divine call to hit the restart button that liberates those those who are shackled by inequity and bondage. Every 50 years, the Israelites were to practice Jubilee, and Jesus here associates his mission with that practice. We have tended to spiritualize this passage in Luke 4. We've tended to be thinking about it in terms of spiritual poverty, spiritual slavery, and spiritual sight. But the actions of Jesus through his ministry and through his life, and also what he's talking about here, and how he he presented his ministry, show that he is talking about physical lives. He addressed material poverty, not just spiritual. Jesus gets involved with the gritty reality of people's lives and daily struggles and the injustices they experienced. It's interesting that people were impressed initially at Jesus' Jesus, uh, proclamation and what he had to say. And it implied the arrival of the kingdom and they were happy. But when he implies that the foreigner is included in this mission, when he implies that it's not just about the Israelites, it's it's, it's also about the foreigner, they become less happy and... um, They become filled with wrath and try to throw them over a cliff. So you can see that if we are going to follow Jesus by getting involved in this type of justice, um, we might want to expect some opposition. I wanted to highlight a few things generally about Jesus' approach to justice. The first thing I wanted to highlight was that Jesus worked for justice in proximity with the oppressed. In the incarnation, Jesus became one of us. He fully identifies with us as humans. And he puts himself in our shoes. He experiences our lives, what we do day to day. So he becomes one of us and becomes proximal and close to what we experience. Also, as he walks around Palestine, he notices the needs around him. He puts himself in a place where he can see the needs that are in his community. He socialized around tables with people that the religious establishment thought it might be inappropriate to socialize with. Sometimes I think we try to do justice at a distance. We try, we're happy to send money and to pray and those things are really important and central. But do we put ourselves in places where we can notice where the needs are? Do we, put, we, do we develop real relationships with those at the margins? Can we move away from a charity mindset where we are giving as givers to people who receive? Can we replace that with a genuine desire to be involved <clears throat> with those around us and learn from them? and to develop friendships and relationships that engage us in knowing the needs of others. How do we do that? Well, that's something I think we need to continue to talk about. Secondly, and maybe this follows on a little bit from what Stephanie was saying, Jesus addresses the issues of affluence and money. Um, There are two contrasting stories, or two contrasting uh, records of Jesus' encounters with people in, in, in Luke. Firstly, we meet the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus with a question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And after some discussion, Jesus suggests that he 
should sell everything he has and give to the poor. And when he hears this, he leaves sad because he was very rich. In contrast, the next chapter, we have the story of Zacchaeus. We all know that, the very little man that we sang about in Sunday school. Those of us who are old, old enough to remember that song. Um, uh, he was a tax collector who had embezzled and stolen very much money from the, the ordinary people around him. And after having a meal with Jesus, he emerges changed and he repays four times the amount that he has stolen. Am I a rich young ruler or am I a Zacchaeus? I say that to myself because I think that's a, a difficult question. And it's interesting that that story of the rich young ruler is the one that we try to say yes but very much about whenever we're talking about it. I think our affluence and money is probably one of the biggest barriers to us doing justice, although it should be one of our biggest assets. The jubilee economics of redistribution of wealth was intended to equalize wealth and meant that no one would be in poverty as all share their resources. And in the early church, this message was very much part of their, their world. There's a quote here from Basil of Alexandria from the fourth century. He said, the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry man. The coat in your closet belongs to the man who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the man who has no shoes. The money with, which you put in the bank belongs to the poor. You do wrong to everyone. You could help, but fail to help. I'm sure you've all played Monopoly at some stage in your lives. It was one of my favorite board games growing up. Um, and it's funny how, as you play Monopoly, everyone quickly becomes a cutthroat capitalist and tries to gain as much, uh, as much possession as they can. Can you imagine playing Monopoly with a jubilee economics mindset? Can you imagine that where the goal is the mutual flourishing of all the players? It would make for a very long game and perhaps not a very interesting game, but it's uh, an interesting concept to think through our attitude to, to money and our possessions. Thirdly, Jesus announced a kingdom, a new order of things, uh, where the first will be last, the last will be first, where the one that serves is greater than the one that is served, the place where God-shaped justice reigns and shalom is achieved, where things are put right again. He announces a kingdom. Jesus was not afraid to challenge both state and religious power structures and point out their injustices as he challenged the dominant culture. For example, he entered Jerusalem riding on a coat. Caesar would have entered a, a, a captured city riding on a great horse, but his symbolic protest calls out uh, a change in attitude. And then on arriving in Jerusalem, he, straightly, he immediately enters the temple and challenges the money changers who have been corrupting the temple and extorting the people, and he, he wasn't afraid to challenge the systems that were in place and the roots behind the injustice that were happening around him. So when it, systemic injustice is happening around us, an angry response on behalf of those who are abused is appropriate. In today's culture of tolerance, we feel uncomfortable talking about God's anger and God's wrath. But if you read through the prophets, you can see very clearly that God is angry at unjust treatment of those in the margins and the powerless. We often shy away from calling out injustice and expressing appropriate, appropriate anger. Fleming Rutledge again puts it this way. 
In our world, something is terribly wrong and must be put right. If when we see an injustice, our blood does not boil at some point, we have not yet understood the depths of God. It depends, though, on what outrages us. To be outraged on behalf of oneself or one's own group alone is to be human, but it is not to participate in Christ. To be outraged and to take action on behalf of the voiceless and the oppressed, however, is to do the work of God. Another area to just highlight in terms of uh, Jesus and uh, justice is the area of disability. Um, Jesus is another group that is often um, faces discrimination and marginalization in our own uh, society. In the culture of Jesus' time, disability and sickness were associated with judgment on sin. And either in the sufferer or someone in their family. And Jesus challenged that idea. Indeed, Jesus challenged it both in his teaching and in his ability to associate with the sick, touch the leper, and touch the unclean. It's also interesting to consider that at his resurrection, and we sang a bit about this in one of the songs, at his resurrection, Jesus continued to bear the scars of his crucifixion and indeed was identified by them. So in some sense, we worship a disabled God. Dr. Amy Kenney has written a book called My Body is Not a Prayer Request, which I think is a great uh, name for a book. And she describes her experience as a disabled person of the ableism and exclusion that she's come across, particularly in the church. And this is a quote uh, that she has about disability justice. Disability justice affirms the unique qualities and knowledge of each body-mind. It stresses that no body, disabled or otherwise, is inherently worth more than another. Each body has needs and strengths that fluctuate over time. Disability justice doesn't create a hierarchy of needs, but holds that all bodies have needs that must be met without shame. The disability justice movement is built on the premise that all bodies must move together to thrive so that no person is left behind. It moves at the pace of the most vulnerable, most marginalized, so that everyone can thrive. So as a church, as a people, we are called to get involved with this seeking justice. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way in his book, Broken Signpost. Jesus is quite clear. One of the beautiful things that distinguishes the Christian idea of justice from others is that it is participatory. We are part of bringing it about. Once Jesus has done what he has to do, he will send the Spirit upon his followers so that through our witness, some new sort of justice will be born. His people are sent into the world as justice bearers to confront the powers that carve up the world with the news that there is a different justice that has already won its case. So as we try to follow Jesus in this way of justice, there's a couple of things I think just to call out or to, to mention. One is that firstly we need to look in the mirror. We need to look at ourselves. We need to recognize our own position in our culture. We need to be honest and recognize that the majority in our community are doing justice from a position of privilege, of manpower, rather than a place of marginalization and powerlessness. I think sometimes can we be oblivious to that, that, um, we've, that we, are, we, are the, we are the powerful in this society. We are the ones that have uh, privilege. So we need to just be aware that that's where we're coming from. We've talked recently about the process of lament and the process of repentance. 
And perhaps in some sense, we need to ponder and meditate through what it might look like in terms of our role as privileged people within a society. Drew Hart is a black American theologian. He does the Inverse podcast along with Jared McKenna, who we've had here a couple of times. And he's written a book called Who Will Be a Witness? And there's a quote from, from him. Deliverance from supremacist captivity requires that Christians complicit with status quo society empty themselves like Christ into anti-dominating ways of life in community with the poor while reconceiving our society in conversation with the Jesus story and the institutions and wisdom of the oppressed. It requires that we believe in another world and another way of relating to one another is possible. It requires that we lean into the kind of love and kind of justice the kind of empathy, the kind of shared belonging with others that is available in and through Christ. Second thing was that worship and prayer shapes how we do justice. We're shaped when we meet together as to how to do justice as a community. It's the boiler room that allows us to be empowered by the Spirit to seek justice around us. Is our worship and liturgy inclusive to those at the margins? Is what we do accessible to those who are not from a Christian European culture? Is it accessible to those with disability, both physical and mental? Do those with physical disability struggle even to get into our building at times? These are questions that we need to think about as we meet together and as we worship together. Again, Drew Hart says this. The question we should ask is how much congregations are willing to transform transform their current habits and practices as they yield to what God is doing so that former outsiders may be adopted fully as insiders. How do we move from being welcoming to creating a truly belonging in the body of Jesus? And also, there ought to be a direct relationship between worshiping God and being formed as a people of justice. However, when I look around this community, I see lights and flames of justice happening all around us. I see voices speaking up for the marginalized in the public sphere. I see spaces and farms being opened up to engage with those on the margins. I see welcome and desire to include. I see people engaged politically to seek the flourishing of our society. I see those who are willing to give shelter to those fleeing war. I see people who are willing to regularly stand at the door of asylum-seeking families and develop and understand their needs and build relationships with them. And there are many other signs of life and signs of justice within this community that I haven't mentioned. So I think we need to be encouraged that there are justice is happening and that's what it should be like in, in any community of Jesus. Um, but we need to continue to fan these flames into fire and support and encourage each other as we address these issues of justice. So as we come to the cross, I think this is the ultimate demonstration of God's justice is seen at the cross. Jesus suffers the ultimate injustice. As a fully innocent man, he is put to death. And in this way, he identifies 
with those who suffer injustice. At the same time, our injustice has its consequences, and God bears those, quest, those injustices in his body on our behalf. It's not that God needs someone to suffer so he can forgive them, but that the inevitable consequence of injustice needs to be dealt with, and he does that on our behalf on the cross. He defeats evil and injustice and death. And in, in the cross, God takes action to create the conditions to make relationships right. And as, Fem, as Fleming Rutledge put it, the triumph of God is hidden in the suffering of Jesus. So the band want to come back. We want to spend a bit of time just pondering that ultimate justice that, that we see on the cross. And we see Jesus in the bread and in the wine. And the, the uh, band are going to lead us just in another song. And as they lead us in that song, we'll come forward and take the bread and the wine and take it back to our place. You're welcome at this table. Everyone is welcome. All you, all you need to do is want to be here. And then we'll take the bread and wine together just to remember our Savior who has done justice on our behalf.